You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 82 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I, I'm i very well, thank you, Valerie. I'm just Good. back from a holiday and nice. visits and other, oh, and bookshop visits in Townsville. Oh, yes. And uh, far north Queensland. And so I'm back at my desk and I'm kind of thinking, do you know what I'm doing? I'm looking at my email inbox and wanting mm. to cry and <laughs> I'm writing a list of all the things that I now need to do this week also wanting to cry. So, so yeah. Did you do work while you were on holidays? Only, only um, I did some school visits and uh, I went to one of the bookshops up there and signed some books and things. But other than that, no, I completely didn't do anything. It was good. It was really Ex- good. I really needed Real a holiday. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, nothing. I didn't write anything. Wow. That's not even a shopping list. That's good. Well, it's kind of unusual. Well, it's- I haven't I haven't been on holiday. Oh. I have finally finally reached the end of the saga. <laughs> no, you finished all the stories. Yes, the 279 short stories that I was judging, 810,000 words. I and I that's rewarded. Been going on for te- it has a little episodes. <laughs> I know. But listeners will be very happy to hear. They won't have to hear about it again. So I rewarded myself by going to the beach for a little while and then getting a foot massage. So it was good. But it was, it was, I'm very happy with the short list and the long list. Very happy. And, uh, you know, I'm going to take a few days break and then I'm going to determine the winner. Okay. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yes. Go on. Having read 279 short stories. Yes. Your top three tips for people attempting a short story, Valerie. Oh, yeah. Well, look, that's that's a great question. I was thinking about that and I think number one is you need to write a story and not a scene. So... There are some instances where you can tell the writing is really good and there's potential here, but really it's just a scene. There's nothing happening in the story at all. So you, number one, you need to write a story, not a scene, I would say. Number two, uh, follow the brief. So make sure you write to the number of words or, you know, under the Mm. number of words. Um, Number three, without any shadow of a doubt, and I mentioned this, I think, in a previous episode, uh, but very much make sure you show, don't tell. This was, uh, there were so many really good ideas, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of short stories that you read in competitions like this. And they're really good stories, but they're told in a very, this happened, then this happened, and he was angry, and she was angry, right. and then they got married, and and he was really frustrated with her. But you should be, instead of telling people he was frustrated with her, 
you should be showing people that he was frustrated with her. And and that is where the the beauty of the writing can come in is when you go through and you, you 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 read these stories and they're very compelling and it doesn't feel like you're being hit over the head by being told there's this fact then this fact then this fact you're actually being led very seamlessly along the, the this this story because and it just unfolds in front of you so show don't tell is I think one of the most fundamental aspects of writing, not just short stories, but 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 fiction generally, and uh, but it, it's 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 a very common, very very common mistake. Fantastic, there very go. good tips, Valerie. Mm. Oh, I have a bonus tip. Oh, <laughs> bonus tip. <laughs> when you're writing, but wait, there's more. <laughs> wait, there's more. When you're writing a short story, it's a short story. This is not Game of Thrones, so you can't have five thousand characters in there. Because it's very confusing and it just doesn't work. Right. There you go. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So let's move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. All right. So what have you got for us, Valerie? Because as you know, I've been lying under a palm tree, (laughs) (laughs) not thinking about writing at all. I know that's hard for people to imagine me under a palm tree with my lily white skin, but there I was. Okay. um, So what have you got for us? Well, an interesting link from PRI, it's your paper brain and your Kindle brain aren't the same thing. And it's basically a article talking about the way that you read when you're reading on a Kindle is actually totally different to the way you read when you're reading on a piece of paper. And it's called, they, they call it, the biliterate brain. And it says the problem is that many of us have adapted to reading online just too well. And if you don't use the deep reading part of your brain, you lose the deep reading part of your brain. And I have to say it's true because, you know, what this article is saying that the, the deep reading part of your brain, it's the concentrated kind of reading when you want to immerse yourself in a novel or read a mortgage document to make sure that you're understanding it properly. But when you're reading on a screen, you kind of think you're reading Twitter and you don't absorb it in the same way. So unless, you know, there might be some people who really train themselves to absorb it in the same way. But I do think that's true. And I and I realize in my own behavior, I might buy a Kindle book first. And uh, if I like it, I'll go buy the paper book, which is really strange, I know. But do you know what I find interesting about this? I think that this just uh, scientifically tells us something that I think journalists and editors have always known. Mm-hmm. because you cannot edit as well on a screen as you do on hard copy. So yes. if you really want to get into something and proofread it properly and copy edit properly, you need yep. to print the document and read it like that line by line. And I remember when I was a young journalist back in the day, <laughs> um, I had a managing editor who told me to print my story off and read it backwards. So I had to start at the bottom and read it line by line backwards because mm you're concentrating on each word that way and how they're put together. You're not just reading the story or reading the, um, uh, the, um, you know, whatever. So yeah. it's, it's, um, it's important if you are, you know, looking at proofreading something that a manuscript or something that you want yeah. to send off, or if you're doing something like that, print it out. And it's a little bit like, I remember when I first wrote the map maker chronicles, I printed it off and I read it aloud to someone. Right. And that again is a completely different way of editing a a manuscript. And that wow. that was really valuable because you can hear it then. You're not only reading yes. it, seeing it, but you can hear what it sounds like. And that's um that's something else. But I, I honestly think that's something that 
you know, anyone who's worked across journalism or editing over the last, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years mm. would, would already have known if you want to read something properly printed off. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. Good tip. Definitely. Mm. Well, also, uh, another link that we've got, I mean, have you seen, seriously, Alison, I can't believe it when I turn over in the paper and I read the bestseller lists these days because half of them are colouring books. I know. I just (laughs) – Have we talked about this? Because I feel we've had this conversation, but I'm somewhat astounded by it. Me too. And I'm always astounded by people who tell me that they don't have time to read, but but suddenly they have time to colour. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's look, you know, colouring in is not my thing, but it's obviously a thing that lots of people. I, in the, I guess lots. the thing is, if I want to be creative and I want to, um, you know, find myself in another place and think about something else, I just sit down and write something, or I go weed my garden, as we've discussed mm. on several occasions. Um, but obviously, this is allowing people to put themselves into a different frame of mind. Mm. But also <laughs> remember, well, I think it's also important to realise in the same way as like recipe, you know, cookbooks, we often buy cookbooks as gifts and the person who we give it to may never use the cookbook, if you, you know. Yeah, it's, it's true. So often, I, I think colouring books can sometimes be a gift from somebody try to tell their friend or their partner or their spouse, you know, slow down, get off your mobile device and they may never actually colour. Well, some of them, but I mean, the thing is like, I, I went in there <clears throat> recently in the school holidays, I took my niece down, it was her birthday and she's a very creative little thing. And I took her down and bought her one of the adult coloring books right. because they are quite beautiful yes, and she yes. was quite excited about it. But all I can think of is that, you know, those color by numbers oil mm. painting kits are coming back next. Like oh. I think that's the next thing and people mm. will be framing their wall art, you know, I, I don't know, I just, it's. It's not for me, but it is for lots of people, and that's fantastic. So, well, it's you know, so whatever su- floats your boat. It's so successful now that Pacific Magazines and Bauer Media are releasing a whole slew of colouring books because they've realised this is a trend and they're cashing in the trend. New Idea has got an animal lover's colouring book. That's Life has a colouring book to calm the mind. The Women's Weekly is doing colouring books like they're they're doing uh, versions of their old covers. Better Homes and Gardens has colour for spring. Okay, so my (laughs) my question for you then is when it's appearing on the cover of That's Life or whatever they're doing with it, like Mm -hmm. selling, um, is is it over? Have we jumped the shark at this point? I think we're we're coming up to it. it I think that uh, yeah, I, yeah, not not quite yet though. I think you that really? there's life in the colouring book yet. Maybe we should do the Australian writers thing, colouring, <laughs> colouring some words. Well, yeah, like <laughs> just a whole book of motivational quotes about writing, and you just colour in the bits. What do you reckon? Anyone oh, want to? Anyone want to? I, I could crowdsource. I could crowdfund it. If you want. Oh my god! Or oh, maybe no. not. <laughs> or not. All right. Let us move on to another link that I have. This is from IndieWire, and it's the ten most common reasons why scripts are rejected. Oh. And I thought that that was interesting because, uh, because you know, I've recently come off the back of this judging all these short stories and some of them are kind of similar. But the number one, uh, the number one reason in this list is that the scenes are void of meaningful conflict. In other words, the story doesn't go anywhere, oh, you know. What it's and seen it's, for the sake of a scene. Possibly, Yes. 
And I think that that's what people who can write beautifully and can describe beautifully need to remember. They still need to move the story along. Mm. And so that's the case whether you're writing a short story or, or a script as well. And the other, the other, uh, some of the other reasons are that uh, the protagonist is a standard issue hero and the other characters are stereotypes as well. And the villains are cartoonish or evil for the sake of evil. Uh, The female characters are underwritten. Now, of course, this is, um, this flies in the face of all the superhero movies that we've got going on at the moment. But uh, it's, I mean, they certainly make sense, right? I think that you know what for me like I, I think a lot of the I think a lot of the reasons in this particular blog post could go to any type of writing to novels yes. or whatever. And I think that number 10, the story mm. begins too late in the script. Oh is yes. A common problem um for all stories and I know it's a problem that I've had on several occasions, I have locked chapters off the start of my novels yep. because I've realised that, you know, it's that whole thing of, I think we've discussed in the past, you know, you have to start on the day that's different. So I don't, you don't need to see all the backstory in the first two chapters. So mm. what you're trying to do is give us, you know, put put the reader in the story right from the start. Um, and the story begins too late in the script is a big problem for lots and lots of different writers, I think. Yeah, and novelists, and even mm. the short, even short stories. It's kind of like it got sexy towards the end, kind of thing. Yeah, but, you want to, Yeah, so that's basically like take the first two thousand words out, yeah, use the last thousand, and then add on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, and that's yeah. highly recommended to yeah. yeah short stories and novels. And as you say, with novels, take out the first two chapters. Yeah. But let's move on because we are coming up to NaNoWriMo. Oh, now, we are. Yes. Now, just in yes, case there are some listeners who are not familiar with NaNoWriMo, Alison, can you yes. give us a brief description? Uh, NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month and you can sign up at nanorimo.org. Basically, the challenge is to write 50,000 words in 30 days and if you sign up to the official site, you get a graph to you know, keep you keep you motivated. It's all about the graph, as we've discussed before. Yes. But it's um it's a really good challenge. Look, I always look at it from this perspective that if you know, for me, it's about getting some words on paper. And if I end up with ten thousand words at the end of November, then it's ten thousand words I didn't have at the start of November. Like I always, I always try to do the fifty. I've never done the fifty. As I said, I think last episode or the episode before, I got to forty-eight and a half one time, <laughs> and everyone just went, "Oh my god, surely." You <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, there are days, it's it's like anything, like I, there are days with NaNoWriMo where I write 3,000 words and there are days where I write 400 words. And I think that um, you've got to cut yourself some slack along the way and allow the for the fact that there is, you know, I, I have, so I've, I'm signing up this year. I'm also running a Facebook group. If anybody would like to join it, you'll find the details on my Facebook page. And, you know, it's sort of like, I, I know that in that month at, Right now, at this point, and this is without the whole month being organised, I have several family things. I have three days of school talks. I have, you know, I'm going to to Sydney for several days. I, you know, so I know that my life is not going to be optimally set up, shall we say, yes. to write 1,617 words a day. But I'm going to have a good crack at it because I will have something at the end of that month and I think that that's a good thing. Now, one of the things about NaNoWriMo, if you haven't done it before, is that it's free to join. You don't have to mm. pay. Oh. And there are people all over the world who are doing NaNoWriMo. It's not mm. just a small thing. It's an international 
movement, really. Now, right. what is it, Al, about the fact that there are all these other people who are doing it with you, who are trying to achieve 50,000 words in November with you that's useful? Well, I think the thing that's probably most useful about it is that, you know, as we've discussed several times, writing is such a solitary thing to do. And that feeling of being part of something bigger um, and having a whole lot of people to talk to, like, there's suddenly like it, there's a there's a hashtag on Twitter, there's Facebook page, there's a million things. You can actually go into forums within the actual official site. There's a million people talking about writing, trying their hardest to get the word count done. People have write-ins. If you're in like a, a lot of the you know capital cities, you can join a write-in, which means you head off to a library on a Saturday afternoon and sit around with 30 other people with your laptop, which you know <laughs> wouldn't work for me because I'd be chatting. But you know, that's how it goes. Um, um, so there's a whole lot of different things. It's a, it's a motivational thing. It's just that notion. And once you get started in November, uh, mm-hmm. what I find is that the momentum of it, the impetus of it continues on and, and you will, you know, hopefully finish whatever it was you started, even if yes. you get the 50,000. And a lot of uh, our graduates who have done the creative writing course tackle NaNoWriMo because, you know, they'd want to keep the momentum going and it's a great way to do it with a bunch of other people. So we have a really good question from one of our graduates, Zora, and Zora is asking, I would really like to do NaNoWriMo this year. My problem is I have a ton of different ideas and none seems really concrete and the one. How do I go about pinning these ideas down and finding which one can take flight in time for Nano this year. Would be grateful if you could give me some of your practical and useful tips to help with this one. Go for it, Al. Oh man, this is <laughs> you know this is the kind of question that just makes me cry. Well, for Why? starters, well, congratulations on having so many ideas. That's fantastic. <laughs> yes. Um, I I don't know. Look, I think it's one of those things where I have you know I always have a whole file of ideas and things like that. But I think you always. I think you always in your heart of hearts know which mm. one of them is worth pursuing. Like I've got lots of half-baked notions and mm. bits and pieces of things that I've written down. Like so it, I guess if you want to get practical with it, the thing to do would be to be a sensible person and to plot one of those ideas, like take two of them or three mm. of them, whichever ones you feel the most you know, um, passionate about Mm. and plot them out and see if you can make them work, um, even if it's just an outline, like what's going to happen, what's, give yourself an ending, find out if you can actually get to an ending, that sort of stuff with the story Um, and work out. I think any idea can give you 50,000 words, but you're probably going to need some subplots and you're going to need decent characters. So, you know, like have a look at at the main, not just the idea, but who is going to drive this idea forward for you. Have mm. a look at the character that you have in your head. Like it's, it's you've got to fall in love with the character mm. to really um, drive the story. And if you're not in love with the character, you're going to find it really difficult. And if it's not your your main character that you're in love with, because sometimes you know they're not that lovable, um, mm. maybe there's a best friend or a support character or someone who is going to keep you motivated enough to mm. kind of get through to the end of the story. I mean, I. I've got a couple of different ideas for um, for, for Nano this year, which, you know, um, Alison Rushby, who is 
my co-host in the NaNoWriMo group that we've got together is just hysterical at the notion that I have several ideas and I haven't decided which mm-hmm. one I'm actually going to do yet because mm-hmm. she, of course, has planned the whole thing out and knows the scene structure <laughs> and has it all organised and she's ready to go. Wow. Um, but I think it's just a matter of I know how much work is involved in each of these ideas and it's going mm. to be a matter of – because that's the other thing. If your story requires a lot of research, as one of mine will do right. – um, you know, it's probably not the one for NaNoWriMo because I haven't done the research at this point. Now, I could leave gaps and XXX, as I often do, but I think for this particular uh, idea that I have, I really need a bit more, you know, world building before I start. And so it's probably not going to be that one. That will be something that I'll put aside until next year. Another idea that I have, I've actually half done. So um, do I finish that? Probably not because I know where I'm at with that. So I think mm. it's going to be the third idea and it'll be just, and that's pretty much how it works out for me. That's, that's what I, that's my process. I don't know how practical that is, mm. but yeah, if you, if you're thinking that there's going to be a lot of research involved in one of your story ideas and you don't have time to do that before you start, mm. then that's not the idea for Nano. Choose yeah. something that you can get a first draft down for. Great. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. That's all you're writing is a first draft. And if you're writing an adult novel, then 50,000 words is, is is a short first draft. You know, you're going to need mm. to add another uh, twenty to 40,000 words to that to that particular draft before you've got anything that's anywhere near ready to send off to a publisher. So, you know, all you're really doing is banging out a very, you know, sketchy first draft. So, you know, keep that in, in your mind as well. Yeah, great advice. Don't do stuff with too much research involved and choose the one that you're going to get a first draft out of. And I would add the one you're going to have the most fun doing. Yeah, because this is really about a fun thing. Like uh, Mm. I wrote the first draft of the first Mapmaker Chronicles book during NaNoWriMo a couple of years ago and it was just so much fun. It was just like let's have a crack and see how this goes, you know. Mm. So if you want to feel a bit like that, about what you're doing because this is really an exercise in getting the words written. So Mm. look at it like that. It's an exercise in getting the words written and getting you into a writing habit more than I'm creating a a national, uh, you know, a a work of art here that's going to be a masterpiece and ready to send to publishers the minute, you know, on the 1st of December. (laughs) That's not it. That's not how this works. You know, this is really about sort of getting your ideas down and you're not allowed to edit, which I think is a beautiful thing. Like you can't go back. You just got to keep going forward. And I think a lot of writers need that practice of just going forward and not spending four and a half months on their first chapter because that's, you're never going to get a book done that way. Yeah. Great advice. Okay. Hopefully that was useful for you, Zora. I don't know how helpful that was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's move on to the world of blogging. Well, sort of blogging. Uh, Now, blogging has certainly um, really spearheaded this trend into first personal confessional type pieces. And there are so many blogs, personal blogs these days that really reveal all about a person's innermost thoughts and lives and that sort of thing. And it's very, we we find it fascinating, some, some of these blogs, we find it fascinating because A, they can be well-written, B, fascinating story, C, it's kind of just a bit in, interesting that somebody would reveal that much about themselves. So you kind of just 
mesmerized or intrigued in a sense. And no doubt, of course, publishers have realized, because we went for years with very little opinion in our newspapers and in our magazines. It was all very factual. It was all very journalistic. But mm. in the last three years or three to five years, this this first-person staff has had a bit of a renaissance. And there's a really great article in Slate, and it was provided to me by the person we are interviewing, our writer-in-residence this week, Kate Hennessy. And uh, she sent me this link, and it's called The First Person Industrial Complex. We'll put the link in the show notes, but one of the things this article in Slate is talking about is the fact that you know, there is this trend and is that good or not good for a writer? And in particular, it talks about a writer called Natasha Chenier, who is 27, and uh, she put forward an article uh, called um, I Slept With My Dad. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it was about sleeping with her father and she got an immediate response saying, yes, we, we want it. And the, the article went crazy. You know, it went, it had so many views. It was ridiculous. She was on the name on her, her name was on everyone's lips. And, um, it just, it was a massive success if you want, you know, to, to use that word. Now to their credit, the editor did make sure before they agreed, decided to go ahead and publish it, whether she, whether her name is Natasha, whether Natasha was ready for the fact that this was now going to be online forever. Mm. <laughs> you couldn't like go burn copies if you, no, you can't decided. Go back. Can't go back. And she felt that she was ready for it and she really wanted to tell this story and she was ready as a writer to be associated with this story. And she, and it, you know, it, it got published and it was very successful. And so you know, that gave her her 15 minutes of fame. But what was interesting is that, you know, she she thought this was great. I've, I've got my foot in the door as a writer. People know who I am. But the next article that she pitched to, to Jezebel, sorry, the, so it was in Jezebel. Yeah. Um, the next article that she pitched to Jezebel, which she wanted to write about, uh, you know, female characters in Mad Max – didn't even get a response oh. from Jezebel, the, 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 you know, publication that had published her first viral article. So I think it's a little bit of a warning in that even though you may be ready for this big work of this, your big confessional, your big personal essay to go out there, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a writer, even if it's successful. Because really... Because it's about the story, not about the byline, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And your success as a writer, it comes down to your body of work, not one viral hit. So Mm. really interesting article, which we'll put in the show notes. Mm. Speaking of show notes, just to make it easy for everyone... We, uh, you know, previously we used to mention this big long URL to go and find the show notes if you want to look up any of the stuff that we talk about. But now you can go to so you want to be a writer dot com dot au and that will take you straight to the show notes. Hooray! 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 <laughs> <laughs> but what are your thoughts on this whole, you know, personal essay thing? Do you think it's good <clears throat> for writers to, to? to put themselves out there like that? Well, I mean, I've always kind of, when it comes to writing or anything, have just sort of like stood by the maxim that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Um, 
I think that you need to think about why you're doing it. And I think you need to have a, if, if, if you're thinking that you're going to put this, you know, I slept with my dad or whatever the thing is going mm. to be out there and it's going to actually build some forward momentum for you as a writer, you need to have a strategy in place as to why that might be the case. Um, think about the form that you want that to take. Do you really want it to be a blog post, which is all about clickbait for someone else necessarily yeah. or or, you know, is it a, you know is there more to it? Do you have a memoir? Have you got something that you can own? Because I think, you know, so often our stories, you know, you put a story in a magazine or something like that, you write a, you know, a true confession mm. um, and you don't own the story anymore. The story's gone, you know. So if you, if you want to really do something like this, think about where you put it and why you're doing it. Um, mm. You know, because if you put it in a magazine, you might get paid, what, $500,000 or something for it. Is your story... And yes, three hundred and fifty thousand or a million people might read it, and maybe your, maybe what you want to do is raise awareness of your particular situation or or your you know whatever thing that you're talking about. Um, but what's the price going to be? Like, what's it mm. going to cost you to do that? So I look, I tend to stay away from it. It's not my thing. I don't do memoir. I'm not particularly interested in sharing my deepest confessions with the world. I think that um, you know, I, I again just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. So I think you have to really think long and hard about why you're doing it, what you think you're going to get out of it and what it's going to cost you. And also I thought I'd add something that um, I was speaking to a woman the other day. This is an interesting aside and particularly to personal bloggers who, you know, who are often very, very good writers, but, you know, they, they put themselves out there online and they, and sometimes they might be at home because they're raising kids and they don't think that they have an employer that they, um, you know, have to worry about who, or who's going to read their blog. But the thing is your kids are going to grow up and one day you're going to have an employer that you might, yeah. that you might worry about. And I was talking to a woman who set, who was recruiting for somebody who to write content, uh, like a copywriting kind of situation, among other things. And uh, she she narrowed down to her shortlist and then she went and read she found the blogs of her shortlist mm. and she read them and she went back and read them and she realized that with some of them they were always talking about how their kid got sick they had to take a day of work or how they needed a mental health day they had to take a day of work or mm. they needed to whatever and they had to take a day of work and she crossed that person off her shortlist, mm-hmm. even though she was, you know, down to the final, you know, uh, uh, f- final few. So, yeah, just be careful about what you do put out there and be aware that everyone can read it. Mm, forever. Forever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> on that happy note, let oh, us cheerful. move on to our writer in residence this week. And this is Kate Hennessy. So Kate uh, teaches at the Australian Writers' Centre, but I think what's fascinating about Kate is she just writes about so many different things. She's a freelance writer who says that she's mastered the, you know, feast or famine dynamic that can be typical for many freelance writers because she combines her work in arts journalism. Now she does music reviewing, dance reviewing, book editing. Uh, She does question writing for TV game shows. And she, she loves the arts, but she balances it with higher paid jobs in things like corporate communications, copywriting, teaching. Uh, you know, she teaches at uh, profe- she teaches professional business writing 
and Business Writing Essentials. There's two different courses at the Australian Writer Centre. But she also writes music reviews for the likes of the Sydney Morning Herald and is a dance critic for The Guardian. So Mm. I thought we'd have a chat to Kate. So, Kate, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you do a real mix of different types of writing. You do business writing, you do music writing, you write about dance, you do a whole heap of different things. Can you, How would you describe what you do and the mix of what you do? Yeah, um, I don't really think there's an umbrella term for it <laughs> um, because it's definitely a, a kind of mixed bag of things. Um, And I think from the outside it may seem kind of random but it's actually not because it all sort of ties in pretty neatly with my background. Um, I did a creative writing degree so that's sort of where I began Mm. in creative writing, a Bachelor of Creative Arts. So that sort of feeds into the arts reviews and the dance and the theatre and the music sort of side of things. Um, But then I went into the media so I worked for media monitors for some time and then also a company called IT Journo. Mm. Um, and that's where I kind of started writing about technology and business. So I sort of went into journalism and then I sort of moved on from there into corporate copywriting. So I worked for a writing agency called The Editor Group. Mm. Um, So when I went freelance in 2007, I kind of just kept those three aspects really, which was the creative stuff, the journalism and the corporate work. Mm. And it all sort of yeah, it all kind of ties together really well on, on several fronts. <laughs> and when you sort of did that trajectory from creative to journalism to corporate work, did you plan that or did you want to get into corporate work? Did you want to get into journalism at those steps in your journey? Um, the creative stuff I think has always been with me. So I mm. identify first and foremost as a writer for sure. Yes. Um, the journalism I think came really naturally because – I think journalism is about being really interested in other people and be, and sort of being immersed in their stories and being able to ask questions. So yeah. that sort of came naturally to, I, I suppose, who I am. Um, but the corporate work was a bit of a U-turn um, for sure. Um, but as soon as I started doing it, I really enjoyed that too. So, um, yeah, I was kind of, I don't know if headhunted is the word, but I was approached by the editor group to join them mm-hmm. um, and it was a massive learning curve. But looking back on it, Um, I'm really glad I did that because financially it's made a lot of other things possible. Mm. So what do you mean by that? Financially it's made a lot of other things possible. Um, Well, corporate writing. And when I say corporate work, just to be clear, I kind of mean anything that's not media side. So anything that's not sort of strict journalism, code of practice kind of um, journalism. So that might be lots of things, but um, that's kind of what I But what kind of things would that include? Um, I've done so many things. So I've kind of, I've done annual reports Mm -hmm. for sort of blue chip companies, but also companies like GetUp Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done, I've written quiz uh, for years. I wrote quiz questions for a Channel 7 kids game show. Wow. (laughs) Um, Which I would consider corporate work because um, it's creative, but it was um, for Channel 7. So yeah. You know, um, what else? Obviously, I teach at the Writers' Centre, so I kind of consider that corporate side. Yes. Um, I've written sort of quite heavy sort of financial and technical stuff. Mm. I've written brochures for enterprise agreements. I've honestly done – I've had a really big diversity actually in my corporate work. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Well, so let's circle back to you were saying that your corporate work has made other things possible. Yes. Um, Well – as you probably know and as your listeners probably know, um, journalism isn't the best 
paying profession to be in um, and sometimes it can feel more like a passion project, to be honest with you, um, but, you know, more and more these days, I think. So the corporate work has always paid a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say it's astonishing, but I think it's fair pay for, for good work. Um, and so I've kind of been able to use the corporate work to balance the, the journalistic work and therefore kind of probably indulge the journalistic stuff a little bit more mm. in that I don't have to sort of churn as much as other journalists. I can mm. really take my time with pieces. Yes. Um, but, yeah, no, the, the corporate stuff I've, I've had sort of long-term clients, which is good because then you build a really good relationship with their business and their style and then obviously your rates can go up over the years because you kind of become, um, what's the word? They can't find anyone better than you. In- indispensable. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> so let's come back to when did you know you wanted to be a writer and what steps did you take to get there way back when? Yeah, um, I would, I'd say it goes back so far I can't even remember. Really? Um, you mean from yeah. school? Oh, uh, earlier. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've always in the I, womb. I, I, <laughs> who knows? Just, I mean, as far as I can remember, I guess is the best way to summarize it. Wow! And, and my mum kind of um, backs that up. So, um, I, I think though, I mean, I read a lot as a kid. Mm. Um, I don't read as much now, but I read a lot as a kid. And I think I can actually, I can remember a bit of a turning point, which is was in about year six. Mm. Um, and I wrote a short story and my teacher who I loved, do you know those primary school teachers you just love? Yes. <laughs> um, he was so impressed with it and he read it to the class and he mm. pulled out particular lines in the story and particular words and vocab I used specifically. And I remember, like I really remember this feeling of feeling so proud and so special. Wow. Um, yeah, and I think I can probably trace it to then. But um but I think it's also about, I don't know, I think writers tend to be really observant people and writing can be the only way in which to express the nuances of what you observe. Yeah. Um, so it sort of feels like, and I know this is going to make me sound like a bit of a wanker, but um, <laughs> it is. Um, it kind of feels necessary in a way because you're observing these things and writing's the only way to express it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you do as we know now, many different types of writing, but writing a, say, music review is completely different <laughs> to writing an annual report for a blue chip yes. company. So do you have to um, get into a different mood or a different groove to switch hats in order to write, um, you know, different types of things? Absolutely. and. Mm. If I told you I had the silver bullet for how to do that, I'd probably be lying. It's really hard. Right. Um, what I try to do with a lot of the corporate stuff, uh, for a lot of people they like to do all their writing from home. Um, but if I've got a corporate job to do, I try to do it on site. Oh, that really okay. helps um, Why? if they've got a desk because I'm in. I'm not at home with my music reviews around me mm. in that space where I kind of write more creatively. I'm at the corporate job. Um, so that can help. Yep. Um, but I try not to do more than one thing in one day as well. You mean one type of writing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And I've learned to, I've learned to build, I've learned to build time around things because it's probably more about burnout. Um, because certain kinds of writing really burn you out and, um, Live reviews, for example, I do live reviews for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Guardian, yep. um, and I'm always just a wreck after those. <laughs> right, because you're out late. 
Well, I'm out late and then just something about the nature of writing a live review the day after you've been to a show to a deadline. Yeah. Um, I just get burnt out. I, I can't keep, even if I'm wrapped up by one o'clock or two o'clock, I can't take on any more writing for that day. Wow. I um, thought you would have said that the corporate writing burns you out. No. Wow. Okay. No, it's the opposite. It's definitely the opposite. Okay. Well, speaking of live reviews, you do a lot of music reviewing. How did you always have an interest in music? How did you get into music reviewing in the first place? Because a lot of people uh, are interested in doing it, but they have no idea how to actually start reviewing stuff. Um, yep, I've always been. I've always been part of the music scene, a music kind of. You know, ever since I was in the Blue Mountains and then Wollongong, um, I started writing about music when I was living in San Francisco. Hmm. Um, but it was, and it's a bit, so I'm a bit torn in recommending this, Valerie, because okay. <laughs> um, I don't want to sort of recommend people write for free, but right. that's how I started mm-hmm. um, with music writing um, mm-hmm. for sure. And yeah, it was just baby steps. So I had to develop confidence and a kind of a voice because you do need a voice when it comes to being a critic. Um, and so, yeah, I, I sort of started with the street press um, and then my most kind of, I guess my most important step was approaching a publication called Ness and Noise, which is an all-Australian um, music publication, which has really great writers. And I think that was the turning point for me because I think with anything in writing, if you're surrounded by people who are really good mm-hmm. and you really respect your game just improves exponentially. Yes. Um, Yeah, and that's what happened. And then that was the point at which I thought, hey, this is something I can do and do well and I'm part of something. Um, Yeah, and then I kind of approached Bernard Zool at the Sydney Morning Herald and he sort of brought me on board straight away um, and it all went from there. And so when you say you had to find your voice as a critic, uh, first of all, did you start with, um, album reviews or live reviews or interviews with bands? What was the thing that helped you find your – what was the vehicle yeah. that helped you find your voice and how did you find your voice? How does one find your voice as a critic? <laughs> well, I think for me it was sort of straightforward because I was always, like I said, I did the creative writing um, degree mm-hmm. and so I always had sort of, I, I guess, a style. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, but in terms of what I sort of – what my – intro was for me it was live reviews actually um for most people it probably would be record reviews because it's something you could sit with for a while um and do in private but for me I was totally energized by live reviews and that's where I started um yeah just the physicality of it and and the sort of importance of conveying the atmosphere Mm. Um, that's what a live review it's about is about it's not about what's happening on stage it's about what's happening between the stage and the people in the audience, that kind of invisible sort of zone. Mm. Um, and I was really inspired by that. So that's how I started. What are some of the most challenging aspects of writing about music and especially critiquing music? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, that's a pretty long answer. You, mm. might have to, you might have to cut me off on that one. <laughs> yeah, look, I guess I'd sort of divide that into two different piles so there's the difficulties or the challenges from a career perspective Mm -hmm. and then the challenges from a writing perspective yeah interested in both yeah so from a career perspective well there isn't really one as in there isn't a career in music writing it's it's, and that's one of the challenges it's always going to sort of feel at least in Australia like a bit of a hobby 
Right. Um, it's not the case necessarily in other countries, but it can be a very rewarding hobby. And it's not a hobby, I suppose. What I'm saying is it's not really, it doesn't really have the rigour um, that it perhaps has in other countries. Um, right. There's no, there's really not very much money in it. Mm-hmm. So those are, are challenges, but also. Unless you're make- Molly Meldrum or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And he's like, that was, that was a long time ago. Yeah. You know? Molly Meldrums of the <laughs> of the industry don't really exist anymore. Mm. Yeah, and I think also there's a bit of a lack of uh, excellence. There's a bit of a lack of standard and quality that can sometimes get you down a little bit because yes. often I tell people, they say, what do you do, Kate? And I'm like, well, I'm a music writer. And they say, oh, you write music. And I'm like, no, 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 I write about music. Yeah. And they always look so confused. <laughs> um yeah, so it's you sort of you get. I, I think people think it's something that kids do. It's also <laughs> that sort of um, not kids, but sort of younger people at uni and in their twenties. So right. if you sort of pursue it later than that, you have to be pretty good, um, and yeah. you have to take it quite seriously. But yeah, but from a writing perspective, I think what I like about it, just to start with the positives, yes. I was actually thinking about this the other day, is that um, it's a real practice in honesty and. Mm, especially as a critic yeah yeah because as soon as you even start to veer at all away from honesty you end up in a really dark (laughs) kind of space where you don't know what you're trying to say Mm. and um, I really like that I really like the fact that every day that I sit down and write a critique or a review I have to question myself and Mm. I have to be honest and I enjoy that. Yeah, so that's the good side. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like I said, there's I think a bit of a problem in Australia um, with a lack of excellence and I've never really been edited properly. I don't really feel like I've ever sort of been challenged, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to find those challenges yourself. And, yeah, I think another kind of challenge with music writing is you can get really serious writer's block. I don't think it would happen so much for for music reviewers who write more serviceable music reviews, so pieces that are just kind of, oh, here's an album that's been released, I have to write 150 words. Yes. That's different. That's um, Sure. But when you're actually trying to write something that really sort of dealt, like really kind of gets in deep with something, um, it can take a long time and not all albums give up their secrets easily. Yes. So, <laughs> so yeah. why why is that? I find this fascinating because I never would have picked necessarily that, like critiquing music to gi- give you such gu- a lot of writer's block. Why <laughs> is it so hard? Um, well, I mean, there's the cliche, isn't there? And and any music writers that listen to this are going to be appalled that I've come out with this. But mm-hmm. it's there's the cliche that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Mm-hmm. That's something that I think Frank Zappa said. But mm-hmm. there is that difficulty of trying to put something that's oral and something that you listen to into words. Mm-hmm. That can be very difficult to do without being cliched, without being sort of trite without mm. kind of falling into all of these awful tropes mm. of music writing. You've like got to, food writing. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so you've got to sort of keep steering yourself away from that, keep being honest, keep really questioning why it makes you feel what you feel, what's the context of the piece. Um, you know, no music is created in a vacuum. So how does that 
how does the scene around it influence? What is it, 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 what is it about? You know, there's a lot to, to kind of delve into. Um, yeah. How much do you need to know in terms of a body of knowledge? Let's say you go to a live gig. Uh, there's, there's, I've read some reviews where it's obvious that the reviewer has done no research about the band, knows nothing about the history of the band and literally just reviews the actual live gig. How much of a body of knowledge do you feel is necessary um, and how much research do you do in that Mm -hmm. situation? I'm, I always do research, um, but that's probably, to be honest, less about the fact that for a live review, I think you need to do a lot of it mm-hmm. and more about the fact that it gives you, it makes you feel more confident. Yeah. Um, so if you've researched something, you feel more confident in making proclamations about whether it was good or bad. Yeah. Um, but actually, Valerie, I think you probably need to do more research to do a record review than you would to do a live review because I do think there is merit in the fact that you can go to a show and be won over. Yeah. Um, you know, either you hate this band and you're totally won over or you love this band but you have to be honest with yourself. It was a terrible show. Mm. Um, and I quite like the unambiguousness of live performances. I like the fact that like when you write a record review, sometimes when you write a bad review there's always this sneaking suspicion that you didn't, you just didn't get it. Mm. You just didn't. You didn't know enough of the back catalogue or you didn't know enough about the band or, you know, you don't cope with challenging music very well or there's always this sort of doubt, Mm. okay. But with a live performance, I never feel that doubt. I always feel so clear in my judgment because Mm. I kind of feel like it's I'm there to be impressed and I'm there to be transported and if that doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And it doesn't matter how much research I've done, Mm. it doesn't happen, you know, so it feels easier to me. So speaking of writing bad reviews then, when you have done that in the past, have have you experienced any, you know, ramifications? What do you feel pressure sometimes when you're writing a bad review on the impact that that's going to have on someone's album? Um, yeah. Yeah, to be honest with you, I do. I would like the answer to be no because mm. I think there is that you kind of, can't think about it too much Um, but I do and I think when you're writing a bad review something I learned quite early in my uh, career you need to be even more careful Um, Mm. and yeah I did actually have a pretty bad experience when I first started out at the Herald Um, I wrote a negative review about a band Um, and as it is these days they can of course always find you can't they Mm. Um, so yeah I copped some pretty serious hate mail oh Um, my god and there was one round of it. From and the band or from, from their fans? The singer, no, from the singer in the band. Okay. Um, there was one round of it and I was I was really upset actually. Um, yes. So it was quite personal and I think a little bit gendered as yeah, well. Right. I, I don't, I mean, music reviewing is a man's game and I don't know whether all men who make music really want to be unkindly mm-hmm. <laughs> treated by a woman, but that's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, um, and then about a week later I got, I got, another round from this person so that was um interesting wow I mean oh okay (laughs) um I'm lucky (laughs) yeah yeah so you are now writing regularly about dance for the guardian can you tell us about how that began yeah so the editor the culture editor currently at the guardian Nancy Groves I really enjoy working with her and I think she's um an editor who's invested in, I guess, developing 
writers as well, which mm. is great. I wish more um, arts editors were interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she sent me along. I've always done music and theatre reviews and I guess she'd read some of those. Um, and I suppose my style is fairly vi- uh, visual. Mm. Anyway, so she sent me along to a Sydney Festival work at the end of last year at Carriage Works and I guess she just really liked the review. Mm-hmm. She ended up going to the performance on the back of it. So, wow. um, yeah, she was she was kind of interested enough to go herself. And then from there she uh, just continued giving me uh, dance, dance pieces to review. So mm. I'm currently only doing those for The Guardian though. So okay. we'll see where that goes. So can you tell us what your typical day is like? Now, I know that if you're doing corporate writing, you try to go to the actual corporate place. But if you are writing, say, a review, uh, yeah, I mean, how do you – do you have a routine? Do you have a framework? Like, you know, how do you get the thoughts out out of your brain and into some kind of structure? Oh, I wish I had, you know, like a lot of writers talk about how they have a certain time of the day uh, mm. that works for them. I don't. <laughs> for me, it might be, you know, 12 at night or 6 in the morning. Um, so that's a shame. I can't really rely on that. Um, and I don't, I wish I did have a better routine and it's probably something I'd like to work on. <laughs> um, but I can say that definitely something that helps me, certainly with music reviews um, and other work as well, but especially music, is taking it for a walk. That's what I like to call it. So I'll have a a record that I need to review and it's just not kind of coming out. And I think a large part of that is because music's you're not meant to be sitting at your computer at a desk in a study. Music isn't about that. Music's Mm. a sort of it's it's a bit sort of freer than that. So I take it for a walk. I I take my iPod. Um, I've got great speakers. I've got, you know, great speakers on my desk too of course mm-hmm. but um and I've got a river nearby me and I go for a long walk um and always it frees up it frees me up um I'll end up kind of sitting on some park bench madly taking notes wow <laughs> on my notepad yeah it it works um of course another good thing to do is to download those apps that block the internet um, <laughs> do you do that <laughs> I do yeah I I had freedom but freedom's too so freedom just for your listeners is obviously the one that blocks all of the all internet yes um, but there's another one called anti-social and you can program it to only block Facebook Twitter I don't know yeah site where you like my clothes um <laughs> yeah and I do that too because there's nothing more distracting when you have writer's block than yeah the internet. um <laughs> Once I get going, I'm fine though. I'm not interested in anything but the but the writing. But when you've got that writer's block, you're just so distractible. Yeah, right. And w- but when you refer to writer's block, are you referring to you just haven't structured the ideas in your head enough for you to enable you to begin writing? Yeah, or finding the right words as well. Right. Um, because obviously, with the kind of reviewing I like to do isn't just getting across ideas, mm. especially when the the little tiny reviews I do for the Herald can actually sometimes be quite hard because yes. you're also, you've got such a, sh- you've only got 150 words. Mm. So what I try to do is not only get across the ideas, but every single verb and adjective and every word I use, even the flow of it, I yeah. kind of want that to reflect the feel of the album. So, mm. so it, that doesn't always come I guess that's the sort of creative aspect and creative, I do put creativity into my reviewing. Yes. So creativity isn't on tap. 
So I think this is where I end up kind of in a bind. Um, You can't necessarily plan it in the same way. Mm. So this is probably a good point to mention that if people want to read some of your reviews, which are just beautifully written and so well considered and are just so much a cut above a lot of other, you know, arts critics out there uh, or, you know, um, people who are trying to write about the arts, that your website is um, – what's your website? Um, it's thesmallestroom.com.au. Yeah. And so um, that's yeah. like a, a, a compilation of, of, of links to your various reviews. Is, would that be right? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. much all published work. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely go visit that. So can you give us an, just some kind of idea of what percentage of time do you spend on corporate? Do you spend on music? Do you spend on dance? Do you spend on other stuff? Can you just give us a vague, you know, mm-hmm percentage of portfolio yeah to be honest I think that's easy um I think it's pretty much 50 50 <laughs> right um yeah 50 on corporate and 50 percent on the other stuff yeah because I tend to do blocks so I'm about yeah. to do a block for example of six weeks three days a week um at one of my corporate clients so um I'll do blocks and then I'll take breaks um because yep. I also do travel a bit of travel journalism um and I need the breaks to do that so yeah look I've never kind of it would be interesting to sort of see if it's 50-50, but I think it is. Talk us about talk to us about the travel journalism. What do you enjoy about it and why do you do it? Because you seem pretty busy and travel t- takes time out of life because you have to go <laughs> places and, you know, and you don't get as much done. You really don't get as many words done with travel writing as you could with the other kinds of writing. No, that's so true. Mm. And travel writing would absolutely be one of those things in my category of uh, doesn't pay so well, but mm. it has many other rewards. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think, well, I've always done travel journalism, but I've never been, um, I've always, I've sort of done it regularly, but not frequently. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my travel journalism has been independent travel as well. Um, I haven't been on that many kind of for meals, travel for meals, where mm. the PR company takes you. But actually what a lot of my travel stuff has been about over the past few years is arts festivals. So, right. yeah, so that's sort of a really good way to combine. And that's actually what I kind of want to focus on a bit more in the future. But I might go to Hobart or um, Adelaide or even overseas for an arts or music festival mm. um, and cover, cover the cultural kind of stuff and then do a travel piece as well. Cool. So uh, with your corporate work, you know, you're about to start six weeks doing three days a week. A lot of listeners would be interested in how do you get the gigs? How do you get – how did, would they get into corporate work? Mm. How do you get your gigs? Gosh, it's been so long. Um, <laughs> well, in terms – I mean, I think there's uh, – you can always sort of approach smaller businesses uh, mm. who might be kind of – uh, the businesses of friends or family or local businesses and things like that mm. um, and develop a portfolio that way. Obviously LinkedIn is really important um, and and writers' networks and so forth. Um, you could approach a really busy corporate writer like me <laughs> because I often have overflow yeah. and I'm always looking for people who are good. That's the crucial thing um, yes. to sort of pass things on to um, because I might be about to go off for two weeks and not be able to do something, but I don't necessarily want to give it 
I want to give it to someone in my network, you know. You get quite sort of um, protective. Yeah. Um, so that might be an idea, approaching like a, a corporate writer who's already in the game. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of how you get the repeat work, because mm-hmm. that's what I, I mean, I don't pitch for work at all. Yep. I get it's all repeat work. Yeah. You've just got to do a really good job. And I know that sounds trite, but you, you've got to deliver something really, really good every time and you've almost got to pretend your byline is on it. I think a lot of corporate writers get a bit lazy because Mm. there is no byline. Mm. It's not attached to their name but you can't do that. Um, You've also got to really listen to the client. Um, You've got to be patient. You've got to kind of, I don't know, it's hard but it's not, I guess. So talking about listening to the client, now I knew a journalist who was a very, very good journalist and uh, he, you know, um, he carved out his career in journalism and then he started to do corporate work. And it's kind of like that thing about with your music writing, you ha- you feel like you have to be really honest. Well, he, it's very different in the corporate world because you have to take direction. And sometimes your client may be su- suggesting a direction that as a journalist, you just kind of go, that's so wrong or that's not going to work. And he could never reconcile really that he had a client and he would argue with the client because in journalism, it's done this way. Mm-hmm. Do you find you have those struggles or do you have some way to you know compartmentalize oh. the situation? I, I've never been in the position where I've had to do anything I'm ethically um, uncomfortable with. So mm-hmm. I, I couldn't answer that mm-hmm. because that hasn't happened to me. But in terms of, no, I think you're being paid by someone to give them a product. And I think you have to balance that with also using aspects of your journalistic um, integrity to consult them. So, mm. you know, perhaps it might be sort of just even the plain English stuff or sometimes corporate people can get carried away in you know, over formal, convoluted, complex language. And um, you need to bring your journalistic skills to that, you know, and consult with them. And sometimes you do have to be, you do have to stand your ground to a point. Yes. (laughs) And then you have to let go. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you think about something like an annual report, really, in in reality, who's going to read that? In, In some ways, annual reports need to be more for the business that you're writing them for than a reader Mm. because not many people read them to be honest with you so Mm. sometimes you just have to let go yes Um, yeah and do and do what they want you to do whilst balancing that with something that's going to give them a good product and I don't find that line terribly hard to work as long as you keep listening Mm. So you write obviously mainly non-fiction in magazine newspaper articles and also the corporate work have you ever been tempted to write fiction? Um, well, I have actually. So mm-hmm. I began with that Bachelor of Creative Arts, mm-hmm. but um, and there was a lot of fiction in that. It was creative writing. I majored in creative writing, mm-hmm. um, but I was too young. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. My work was <laughs> terrible, and thank God it's all on floppy disk and completely, <laughs> completely um, uh, yeah, redundant now. Um, mm-hmm. I just wasn't old enough. I don't think. Sure. Yeah. So I sort of I did begin with that. But in terms of the creative writing, I think writing about music and art and also my travel journalism kind of scratches that itch in mm. a way because I do write, I don't know, I, I, I guess I've got a fairly creative take sometimes. Yes. But, yeah, I did, a, I, I did do something 
a year or so ago with a photographer, a collaboration with a photographer down in Melbourne, and that was where he provided these amazing photographs and asked all of these writers to write a thousand words about each photograph, and that was mm. sort of displayed in a gallery, and and I really enjoyed that. So I think yes, I am tempted. Um, was that fiction? It was fiction. So yeah, it was my right. first piece of fiction since uni. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was a massive challenge. And yes. It was funny because I had that feeling with it and I still have that feeling with it. I don't feel like it's finished even though it was displayed and it was put into a book. Oh. And and I think that's something, isn't it, about um, creative writing? You always yes. have that sense that the work could do with more work and sure. another edit. Um, <laughs> and that's weird because as a journalist there's a deadline. Yeah, you file it. Over, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so... um. Yeah, but I am looking forward, I think, at some point to, to getting back into that. So what's your plan, say, for the next, I don't know, maybe three to five years in terms of your writing career? Do you want to keep with your 50-50 flow? Do you want to add another string to your bow? What do you want to do? Look, and obviously I, I, I teach the, the professional business writing with you at the Writers' Centre. Yeah. Um, I love that. I would always sort of – I love – teaching writing I just find it really kind of rewarding so more of that is is obviously um you know always on the agenda mm-hmm. um but I'd like to do more travel writing and mm. I kind of see a niche actually not a niche uh, a gap in the market I suppose um for more travel writers with arts and culture yes uh, ex- um what's the word um expertise yeah uh, because it seems like a lot of travel writers have sort of gotten into a bit of a groove um to put it gently <laughs> and seem to sort of like there's a lot of food writers there's a lot of design there's a lot of sort of luxury hotel kind yes. of yes um I don't see many travel writers who are who have a critical kind of arts culture eye. that's true yeah so I think um I'm sort of I'm, I'm really going to pursue that I think I think it sounds like a really good sort of a good fit for me Mm -mm. and so speaking of um, professional business writing which you do teach at the Australian Writers Centre why do you enjoy teaching why do you enjoy (laughs) teaching writing I mean because you know you could just be spending your days just writing (laughs) (laughs) um look I didn't realize I would enjoy it quite so much I think I don't know, I just find it so sort of, this is going to sound a bit cheesy, but I find it, I'm quite inspired by people who sort of come to these classes because I think people do have a lot of baggage about and insecurities about writing and the fact that they show up and pay to do a full day course and Mm. improve, I feel really sort of honoured to help them with that. And I enjoy the, my classes are fairly sort of conversational and Mm. I enjoy hearing about their blocks and challenges and solving them because most when it comes to professional writing and business Mm. writing most of those challenges can be surmounted you know so I I kind of like that problem solving aspect and I really like um, I think I'm this is another thing I think I'm a people person Mm. and writing's very very solitary Um, yeah (laughs) so it's kind of a way for me to sort of have a really nice day engaging with people and helping and um yeah, I don't know. I think you just either like teaching or you don't. Yeah. And I really, really enjoy it. What are the most common blocks that people have when they come to your classes? <laughs> well, there's the the one of kind of having perhaps a manager 
who is a bit of an overzealous editor. Mm. <laughs> um, so obviously we've got like a plain English and often that comes back to plain English and we've got a handout in the course which they can then go back to their managers with to kind mm. of simplify things. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it's, it ranges from really simple things like they don't know where to begin an email, they don't know how to wrap up an email so obviously yeah. we can sort of help with examples, um, and then but often Valerie, it, it does come back to the to the plain English thing. So they think that they're coming to a business writing course to learn how to write really formally, mm. whereas in fact it's about going back to basics and it's about unlearning some of those sort of difficulties and coming back to sort of what they already know, which is trying to express something um, clearly and concisely. And most people can do that. Mm. They need a little bit of help. But so, yeah, I think it's um, seeing that kind of weight drop off their shoulders. Um, yes. And everyone everyone leaves, I think, feeling a lot better than, than when they arrive. <laughs> Great. So, yeah. and finally, tell us what you are writing now. Not right now, but, you know, <laughs> next. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm doing what I've just wrapped up um, a couple of days ago. I went to Papua New Guinea. So that was a, an oh. interesting travel piece. Um but I'm writing a music review at the moment, an Australian band, which I, I won't name them. Of the it'll, CD? It'll, the CD review? Yeah. Right. Yes, yeah. so, uh, um, yeah, so that's right, a recent album release. Um, what else do I have on the agenda? Yeah, actually not. I'm trying to sort of wrap up because I'm about to go back into a fair bit of corporate work. Yeah. Oh, I'm writing actually a piece about beekeepers uh, for a travel magazine. So that's wow. um, I got to wear a bee suit whatever they're called, the <laughs> speaking suit. So, I mean, the, the, the diversity of things I do is, is sometimes um, oh my God. perplexing for people kind of seeing my posts on in- Instagram. They're like, Kate, why are you in a bee suit? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, um, Was it yeah. scary? No. No, they didn't. <laughs> They didn't come anywhere near me. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, on on that note, <laughs> um, that's been a wealth of information and so interesting because there are so few writers who actually do the length and breadth of the things that you do. So thank you so much for your time today, Kate. Thanks. There you go, Kate Hennessy. So well, that was she- fantastic. I love the fact that she mixes all that stuff up. I think that if you want to you know, make a living as a writer, you Mm. have to think about mixing up, you know, the things that you're passionate about and the things that you love with things that will pay your bills. Yes. She reminds me a bit like you, a bit of you, because Mm. you do so many diverse things. You could be writing a novel one day, you could be writing a sexy story another day, you could be doing copywriting one day, you could be writing a magazine article. So yeah, it's a good, it's good to have the diversity. Mm. So let's move on to our app pick for the week or a web pick for the week. I love this. Okay. <laughs> it's called youcanbookme.com. Now, Liz got me onto this and I think it's awesome. So basically what it is, now you know when you're trying to organize an interview with somebody like that you're interviewing for an article mm. and it, especially if you're going through their PA and they've got to check with someone or you're going through their PR agency and they've got to check and the, the back and forth mm, can be days. somewhat ridiculous. Mm. 
So what you can do with youcanbookme.com is basically it's a calendar. It's an online calendar and you can create the different slots that are available. So you might be trying to organize five interviews that week and what you do is you send them the link Mm -hmm. and they can see your calendar. I mean, not your whole calendar. They they can just see the slots that are available and they can book in for one of those slots. And as soon as they book in, it becomes unavailable to everyone else. It saves so much time. It's ridiculous. I can imagine that would work extremely well for you, like given the number of 80 billion personnel at any time that want your attention. Yeah, works well for anyone. <laughs> well, I'm just, no, I'm just thinking about it. Like I can see it would be a, a very useful tool from that perspective. Mm, I think it just cuts out from the all that back and forth. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Yes, so we'll put the link in the show notes, but basically it's youcanbookme.com and it's my favourite new thing. I might so, get one of those. Yes, get one. Just, it's free. just so no one can book me. It's, <laughs> I might just blank out everything. <laughs> it's free. And okay. also what you can do is if, for example, you know, you don't want someone booking with one hour's notice, you can kind of say, okay, well, there's a two-day window where people can't book me. They always have to book me two days in advance. So mm-hmm. the, those two days become unavailable from whenever it is they log on. Hmm. Anyway, anyway, our working writer's tip this week is from Rashida and Rashida has said, I've been freelancing for a few years now and mainly write parenting and women's health articles. I'd like to try travel writing but have no clips to show for it. How do I get an editor to take me seriously and commission me? And she says, P.S., you guys are doing a great job with the podcast. I love it. So thank you for that, Rashida. Really appreciate those comments. But on to your question. Throwing to you, Al. Oh, I'm just going to throw it back at you though because I, <laughs> I'm still in – speaking of travel writing, I'm sort of in holiday mode brain. Like oh, my my thinking on this is I'm just trying to think back on what I've done over the years because I do write a lot of different things. Mm. I think it's it still comes down to the pitch, doesn't it? And the – doesn't it? It does, but one of the things Rashida is saying that she has no clips. So I'm saying that my, my answer to that is you don't necessarily need a commission to write a travel article. No, that's right. So, and you, so might, you would submit on spec? You, yeah. And yeah. even if it hasn't been published, you could say I'm currently – this is currently in with someone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think number one is it, for anyone else in a similar situation, if you haven't already done the travel writing course at the Australian Writers' Centre, obviously do the travel writing course because that literally goes step by step into figuring out what kind of travel articles work and what kind of travel articles don't. Yeah. I think also people are under the impression that they need to go to Paris or New York or you know somewhere mm really exotic, but you can write a travel article about your own suburb, about your own city. You don't need to travel at all to mm. write a travel article. So you can certainly do any of those things and and you don't – while you might not have a clip, at least you have the article and as long as it's a well-written article, that is what an editor will care about. An editor needs to see that you can write and it doesn't matter whether that's in a PDF or online or in a Word document or your blog or whatever. They need yep. to see that you can write a really good travel article. So it just write one. And also, can I just add to that too, write the story for the publication that you're targeting because send the travel 
send the travel story that that particular editor wants to see. So have yeah. a look at the publication. You know, are there lots of boxes? Do they like pricing information? Do they like, you know, like is do, do you need a list of things for families to do and things for couples to do? Like have a look at the format of their stories and submit that story. Submit Absolutely. the story that's ready to go as opposed to writing, you know, the wafty travel story of your dreams. Mm. Um, submit the story for the publication. For sure. And so some people might be listening and might be thinking, oh, but that's a whole lot of work if there's no firm commission. And all I have to say to that is that, well, if you're new, that's what you need to do. Once you actually start getting commissions, then you won't have to do that. Yeah, that's right. But if you want to get your foot into the door, that's what you need to do. So it's show, it's show don't tell all over again, isn't it? Show them that you can do it as opposed to telling them that you might be able to. Yeah, great. Exactly, exactly. See how I did that? Just wrap that up. Very so, good. So proud of That's the whole episode wrapped up right there. I, I think so. So on that, <laughs> on that note, Al, what do you – I think we will wrap up. What, what, yeah, what do you, clearly what do you, I'm on fire. <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. So what am I doing this week? Is that yes. your question? Yeah, that's what I was trying to say, yes. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm writing lots of things because I didn't write anything last oh, week, yes. um, you know, beyond an occasional Facebook update. I am uh, writing a whole lot of stuff in, and uh, starting with my newsletter today, which um, oh, I'll yes. be sending out this week. So, And um, how can yeah, people so join your newsletter? Sorry? How can people join your newsletter? Oh, you can join my newsletter by visiting my website, alisontate.com and signing up. And I'm pretty sure I've got um, – I'm adding some little top my top ten tips for freelance writers and my top ten tips for writers of fiction as a, a free downloadable PDF if you sign up for the newsletter. I'm fairly awesome. sure that that is now in position, but I'll double check before the episode goes if out. If not, it will be soon. <laughs> Any minute now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, and from my end, on my end, I am not going to read for three days, I've decided. That's a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> After three days, I will actually revisit the shortlist to pick the winner and then I will go back to my normal reading. But I've decided, yeah, I'm not going to read for three days. Yeah. Yes. You put some hours in. I think you deserve a couple Ooh. of days off. Oh, yes. I'm going to watch crap TV. (laughs) Which is your natural fallback position. (laughs) Yes, it is somewhat. (laughs) But if you guys have a minute or 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it actually does help us in the ratings because if there isn't a rating or review there that particular week, we don't necessarily rank as high, believe it or not. That's how it works. Yes. So uh, we'd really be grateful. And thank you for those of you who have done that. We read every single one. Now you can connect with us on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on all forms of social media. And Alison is where? I'm slightly more complicated because that's just the complex character I am. (laughs) I am at A-L-T-A-I-T on Twitter, Al Tate. I'm at Facebook on Alison Tate Writer. And please come along there if you'd like to join our NaNoWriMo group. Um, Where else am I? Uh, Just alisontate.com has all my social media links if you'd like to say hi. And if you have a question like Zora and Rashida, then email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. So until next week, we'll talk to you then. Bye. This week's giveaway is Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, a wonderful book about creativity and how you can discover and nurture it in your life. Visit writerscentre.com.au slash win 
for your chance to win. Entries close Monday 26 October 2015. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There will be a new book giveaway at writerscentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writercentre.com.au slash podcast. <laughs>